0: Today on Something You Should Know, too much noise in your life is a bigger problem than you may realize. I'll explain that, plus your personality. Do you like who you are? Can you change your personality?
1: I think most people settle for who they are. And in a way that's a bit dispiriting because there's so many more possibilities, possible selves that they could explore.
0: Also, liars tend to use some interesting words and phrases that other people don't use, and they're easy to spot. And why do you click and become friends with some people, but not others?
2: Those last few feet really make a difference. So if you live next door to someone, as opposed to two doors down, you're twice as likely to make friends with the person who lives next door to you. And when you go another door down, the chances of you clicking by half
0: and then by half again. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life.
2: Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know, our weekend episode where you can feel safe to settle in. Crank it up and rest assured that in this episode, except for right now, we will not be discussing or mentioning social distancing, face masks, toilet paper hoarding, (laughs) or anything coronavirus related. And first up today, we're going to talk about noise, because noise is everywhere. And it's a problem because noise affects you in ways you may not realize. First of all, it can make you fat. Research shows that people who are regularly exposed to the noise of traffic, like commuters, are 25% more likely to have larger waistlines. This is especially true for women. Noise makes you less productive. People who work in open offices are less productive than those who work in closed and quiet offices. And it's not just the distraction. Noise causes stress, which reduces productivity. It interferes with memory. A noisy environment makes it hard for people to remember. And wearing headphones with music doesn't really help drown it out. Silence is a great memory enhancer. People who work in noisy environments tend to hunch over their workstations, and that can lead to physical problems like back pain. So, silence is golden, and that is something you should know. You have a personality. It's what makes you, you. But where did it come from? Why are you the way you are? And are you destined to be that person forever? Were you born this way? Can you change your personality? Let's discuss this with Brian Little. Brian is a professor at Cambridge University and author of a best-selling book called Who Are You Really? The Surprising Puzzle of Personality. Welcome, Brian.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: So why is this subject of personality so important to understand?
1: Um, it uh, raises some fundamental questions about what it is to be a human being. Um, it explores the way in which each of us, each, each of our listeners, is like all other people, like some other people, and like no other person. And I found that that is a, a, a really intriguing uh, perspective from which to look at life.
0: Do we know... Roughly, how much of our personality, you know, is prewired, comes with the package, versus how much of it develops over time?
1: We've sort of reformulated that over the over the years, in that the the nature nurture controversy has has actually been resolved uh, because most of the people in our field at least uh, see them as being co-constituted. And so the two are sort of in a kind of choreography and, and in the course of development, both have an influence, but um, they're interdependent.
0: And so what are those things, whatever they are, what are the things that determine who we are and who we become? Um,
1: I think it's it's really helpful to distinguish between the relatively fixed traits that could have what I call a a biogenic influence and what I call free traits, which um, take us uh, into a domain of human growth and and how we can shape our own lives. So the big five traits spell out a nice acronym, OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N, where O is openness to experience, C, conscientiousness, E, extroversion. A, agreeableness and, and neuroticism and those have um, biogenic influence that is that they appear relatively early in life they're subject to a development across a lifespan and they're really consequential for the ways in which uh, our lives are going to go they can predict uh, success in, in, in academic and our vocational pursuits uh, happiness and well-being and health and so on but um, I believe that if we just stop there, um, we miss out some of the most intriguing aspects of what it is to be a human being. I coined the term free traits to describe how many of us will act out of character in the course of our development. And we act out of character because of the personal projects that matter to us in our life at various stages. Uh, So the example I use with my students is that I'm very... uh, uh, introverted I, I have all the characteristics that would be associated with it from a biological perspective. But my students see me as an over-the-top extrovert uh, because I, uh, uh, I'm pursuing with them a project that matters dearly to me, which is to convey with passion what I believe to be true as a professor. And if I have to stand on my head in an extroverted way at 8 in the morning to keep them excited, I'll I'll do that. And I'm certainly not rare. Many people listening to this might realize that they have been acting out of character for, for some time.
0: Well, yeah. when you say uh, uh, we act out of character, yeah. would another way of saying that be, you know, we're different people in different situations. I, I don't act the same with my children as I act at work, as I act when I go to a meeting, when I, as I act when I go to the grocery store. I'm, I'm very different people.
1: Yes, indeed. You're absolutely right. But even that tendency to be different people is itself an aspect of human personality so there's one personality characteristic known as self-monitoring and those who are high in self-monitoring shape their behavior to conform to the situation they're in as as you say you know at at the soccer pitch you act soccer dad when talking with old friends you're yet another person and some might see you as a kind of stand-up chameleon constantly shifting your uh, your personality to suit the situation on the other hand, there are those who are low in self-monitoring who are just themselves. So you've got um, Doug, who is always Doug. He's never Douglas, and he's never Dougie. He's always the same in every situation. And those two individuals, high and low self-monitors, can um, really find it difficult to sustain a relationship, for example, because the low self-monitor says, I don't know who I married you're a different person. Each time I see you in a different setting, you see, I don't know who I actually fell in love with now.
0: But doesn't everybody do that at least to, I mean, it's not an either or, it seems like it's more of a sliding scale. I mean, you it
1: is Indeed it is. Uh, but some people are extremely high on that disposition. Others are not at all. But on virtually all of the dimensions of personality, they're, they're bell-shaped. There's a normal distribution. So most people will stack up in the middle. And that's why I think it's important not just to look at the variability, but to look at the reason for the variability um, and the the projects, as I call them, the personal projects that underlie them. Uh, so um, it may well be that the reason you appear to be so different is due to an underlying project. Like one of the big five dimensions is agreeableness. Michelle may be uh, the most uh, agreeable and, and lovely person you can imagine, but for all of August, she acts out of character because she's trying to get her mother into a care facility. It's not working, and uh, she's up against bureaucratic intransigence, and consequently, she just um, she's Hurricane uh, Michelle for for the whole month. And if you look at her, you'll say, boy, she's just so variable and so uncharacteristic right now. I think the better thing to look at is, what what is her core project that drives that behavior? It makes sense of seemingly inexplicable conduct.
0: Knowing what you know about how personality builds in people, is it possible? Has there ever been, to your knowledge, a case of... Could could you be someone you're not if you really devoted yourself to? I want to change. I want to be a better person, a different person than I am. Can you change your personality, or are you are you guided by the things you've been talking about, and you're stuck in that rut no matter what?
1: Yeah, um, I think I think change is possible, and and increasingly now. We're getting evidence from studies at the University of Illinois, for example, um, that uh, suggests that even the Big Five can be changed, uh, especially with therapeutic intervention and so on, that that we're not fixed like um, uh, plaster uh, in in our lives. We have to be careful, though, in, in changing personality. For example... Uh, the participants that we've looked at over the years have sometimes generate self-change projects so the project is be more outgoing let's say so that's a self-change project and what happens is that if you generated the project yourself if it it is a self exploratory project I wonder what would be like to be more extroverted this summer or fake stability until I actually am stable then that can be health inducing But if it's imposed upon you by somebody else, if you're told to be more outgoing by your boss or or by your boyfriend or somebody who is uh, insisting that you change, that can actually lead in in, uh, studies that have been carried out um, with personal projects analysis. That can lead to uh, feelings of depression and and, uh, vulnerability.
0: My guest is Brian Little. He is a professor at Cambridge University and author of the best-selling book, Who Are You Really? All right, Brian. So with all this knowledge about personality and how it forms and whatnot, so what's the advice for guiding it? What's the advice for having the the best personality you can have?
1: That is to have the capacity to stand back from rigorously pursuing everything that matters to you. Take take your life a little bit more easily, not be so focused upon success and 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 self promotion that you forget the, the little things that can come and gobsmack you with delight on a Thursday afternoon.
0: Okay, so give um, me an example of, of what you mean and what it is you're turning off and what it is you're turning on.
1: Yeah, you know, I think somebody who is constantly trying to advance uh, projects, particularly if they're high-achievement projects, and they've read books on how to get ahead and how to uh, promote um, your your life in a way that you're absolutely certain is important to you, they may miss little signs that are really important. For example, type A individuals um, are peculiarly unable to discern hints in their own bodies that they're overdoing it. Um, They've got to get this job done. They've got to get that project completed. And my advice at the end of the book is that such individuals, you don't need to be type A, each of us can get into this rut, that you need to be able to disattend from uh, project pursuit or the pursuit of goals that matter to you at various times and restore yourself see things that are outside of you, and uh, and that way it, it's both restorative and empowering. And uh, I think that lesson is often missed.
0: So are you saying that if, if you like wanted to be more extroverted, that if you adopted a project that put you out there and, and made you be more extroverted, that yep. you would become more extroverted if you did it long enough?
1: Yes, um, unless you um, don't avail yourself of restorative niches along the way so in my own case my students would never know until i tell them that i'm very uh uh, biogenically introverted because i've had many years experience of acting in an extroverted fashion it's part of my professionalism as it is with you or anybody else who has to act in a way uh that may be somewhat different from their natural uh, disposition
0: do you think your experience that people think about this a whole lot other than you that that, that people just live their lives and adapt their personality and, and and life goes on, or do you think people actually sit around and wonder about their personality and how to make it better or is it is it worth adapting?
1: I think that there are various stages in our life when it becomes more salient normally we 're so busy with with the average expectable things we need to do to get on with our life that we don't reflect. But if you're just retiring now, if if you've you've started to retire, you've given up a regular uh, function and now you're switching to something that's uh, uh, a little less ambitious, or your kids are just going off to, to college, or you suddenly find that you no longer have a job, you've been laid off and you've been at the same mill for for 15 years, then I think at times like this, you start to say, you know, who am I? Am I just my job? Am I just my kids? Am I um, something that is immutable, is going to be me forever? Or am I at the stage of my life where I I actually need to reflect a bit?
0: Lastly, I wonder, do you think most people are content with who they are? Or do they wish they were someone else or more like someone else?
1: I think most people settle for who they are, and um, I think that in a way that's a bit dispiriting because there's so many more possibilities, possible selves that they could explore. But some people are so constrained by their social circumstance, by their poverty by their uh, the rigidity of the family framework within which they were raised that those possible selves don't arise on their horizons and so I I think it's a little it's a bit of a luxury of us in in the West uh, to be able to muse about possible selves but that is a that that is inconceivable to people in other cultures for whom there is no alternative self, there is no possibility beyond what you have been constrained to do. So I think we need to be humble in Western psychology about postulating that there are all these degrees of freedom for being a better you. Uh, We're very fortunate that we can even conceive of such an idea.
0: Yeah, but but in the West, where we do have possibilities, and I can think of people like... Like, even my father, who you know, his father was an engineer, and my father was an engineer, and his brother was an engineer. And I don't think my father and his brother wanted to be engineers. I think they were pushed into it by their father. And yeah. and I wonder if you know that ever. I never talked to him about it, but I wonder who would he have been if he'd been able to choose rather than be pushed. And did he ever regret it?
1: That's a really intriguing issue. I, I remember talking to my own dad uh, when he was in his nineties. He's a very talented man. He was a cabinet maker. He left school in grade four in Ireland um, because he had to work to support the family, and yet he was very bright and and uh, became a, a cabinet maker and a very skilled fellow. And uh, I remember in his 90s, me talking to him, and uh, it was a very loving conversation. I just said, Dad, you know, you, you would have made a great architect. And uh, he just stopped and looked at me in a way that I'd never seen him look at me before. And he said, I didn't do too badly, son. And I thought, oh, God, was, was I making him feel as if he hadn't quite lived up to his aspiration. What he had done was he had reconciled that he had done something uh, that his generation needed to do, as you were saying, about uh, the engineer begetting an engineer begetting an engineer. It was something that he was entrained to by by his social circumstance. But what he took inordinate excitement in was the fact that his son might be able to create another path. And basically, (laughs) that's what happened.
0: Yeah, we adapt. We, we adapt, yeah. and we
1: push forward with with new agendas and new horizons.
0: Well, yes. what other option is there? I mean, you really—what <laughs> else could you possibly do? You you play the cards you're dealt, and you you do the best you can. This is this has been really interesting. Brian Little has been my guest. He's a professor at Cambridge University and author of the best selling book, "Who Are You Really? The Surprising Puzzle of Personality." And you can get the book, well, you can get the book wherever you get books, or you can use the link in the show notes for this episode of the podcast and buy it on Amazon. Thank you, Brian.
1: Delighted. Thanks so much.
0: At some time in your life, you have absolutely clicked with someone. Maybe it was romantic, like a a love at first sight thing, or maybe it was at work, you just felt instantly connected with a co-worker, or in a social situation. Sometimes people just click. And it's nice when it happens, but does it mean anything? If you if you click with someone, is that a good sign that this is a relationship worth pursuing, or is it likely to just be a momentary thing that flames out? Ori Brofman and his brother Ron Brofman have studied this, and actually a few years ago, had a very popular book out on this subject called Click. Welcome, Ori. And so set this up. When, when you talk about people clicking, give me an example of typically how that happens.
2: Whether it's at a party or at work, you meet someone, and it just seems like you've known them forever. You just hit it off. You, you click. And we think of those kind of events as nice-to-haves or serendipity But it turns out that those moments really play a crucial point in our lives and that the relationships that ensue from those kind of connections are categorically different than other types of relationships. Mainly, they're more passionate and have a level of intimacy that is even deeper.
0: Why? Why would how you click in the beginning have anything to do with how the relationship goes later on?
2: The theory is that when you meet someone in that way, and you have something we call quickset intimacy, that that intimacy stays with you uh, long into the future, and that when you experience, oftentimes when you have a click, the experience feels magical. This feels something that's kind of special about it, and it turns out that that magical experience really has a lasting effect. My brother's research. My brother's a psychologist. Um, turns out when people reflect on magical experiences that they've had even 10, 20 years ago, just thinking about the magical experience makes you relive it again. There's something that taps into your brain that's really core about these special types of interaction.
0: So what do you mean by, or, or what does your brother mean by in his research, the definition of a magical experience?
2: What he did is he asked people to really describe a point in your life when you just felt more connected, more alive, more in tune with everything. And people had very different responses. One person was the magical experience for her was um, her night at the prom which she had the first kiss with her boyfriend. Um, other people, a magical experience can be driving a car down 100 miles down the street. The interesting thing is that regardless of the type of experience, whether it's a first boyfriend or driving down too fast, people described in using the exact same emotional language that basically there's moments when you feel even more alive, even more connected.
0: And, and so what? I mean, <laughs> as interesting as this is to identify and observe and talk about, what's the big implication here?
2: Well, we argue a couple of things. One is that the relationships are romantically have a different tenor in them. They have more passion. And who doesn't want more passion in their relationships? but when you look at it uh, from a work perspective it, it turns out that teams that click together function much more uh much more efficiently much more effectively uh string quartets, for example who who com- who are comprised of members who all click and get along tend to have more recording contracts they tend to have higher ticket sales they tend to be much more successful than their counterparts who are just as good of musicians but just because they have that team bonding um, similarly, when you take MBAs and you put them into a room and you, and you have triads of people who really click together and triads of people who just you know are, are normal acquaintances, the triads of people who click together achieve tasks in a much quicker way, achieve tasks in a more efficient way, and are more supportive of each other. There's something that we call personal elevation, that when you click with someone, it kind of brings out the best in us, and it brings out the best in them, and we looked at cases From business to string quartets, one of the cases we looked at was uh, two guys who invented the modern microphone. And from the very moment that they met, they had that connection, they had that magic. And their work style was actually very different because of that, because they had this intimacy, they were able to trust each other more. They were able to kind of brainstorm better. And the result was that they came up with a really significant discovery. When I'm talking to you on the phone right now, the microphone that, I'm, that the phone's using is as a result of these two guys clicking.
0: Must a click happen, according to your definition, must a click happen when people first meet?
2: Oftentimes it does. There are cases when people kind of know each other for a little bit, you know, for a week or two, and then all of a sudden they click because they found, uh, say, a similarity, or they're put into a situation where um, we found that joint adversity is actually a really good indicator of whether two people will click. We actually discovered that there's five separate uh, forces that can help people click. Physical proximity, and what matters about that is that it's not just... Obviously, you're going to click better with someone in the same city. But those last few feet really make a difference. So in one study, they looked at college dorms. And if you live next door to someone, as opposed to two doors down, you're twice as likely to make friends with the person who lives next door to you. And when you go another door down, the chances of you clicking drop by half and then by half again, so that there's something exponential about the physical proximity. The second element we looked at was vulnerability, which is, when you express vulnerability to someone when you really share your true self people tend to reciprocate that and there's a trust that, that that bonds people together and we interviewed a hostage negotiator and you think hostage negotiators would be all about intimidating the uh... hostage taker but really it's about being vulnerable and about building a real relationship um, there is similarity basically it doesn't matter what you're similar in, what really matters is how many similarities you have. It can be really stupid things like you're both like Disneyland, but the amount of similarities is what's going to predict whether you click. And then there's the joint suffering. And the last one is being a high self-monitor. So people who are able to mirror the emotions of others around them tend to be much better at creating this kind of instant connections.
0: The result of all of this, though, is, is what? Is better friendships, more productive work? I mean, what, what is the payoff here?
2: It's better friendships. It's more efficient work teams. It's more passionate relationships. It's personal elevation. It brings out the best in us. So it, it turns out that people who naturally click with others tend to get many more promotions, tend to um, be much more closer to the nucleus of of a company. Um, and in personal lives, it tends to be that it's it's, it's, it's a passion and, 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 and the the intimacy of a relationship that is affected.
0: To the point where would you say that if you don't click with someone right away, that that's, that's a bit of a red flag that if it doesn't happen now, it's probably never gonna?
2: I mean, we shouldn't always give up on people just because we don't click with them. I, I would turn it around and say that oftentimes when you click with someone, you say, oh, that's nice. You know, you meet someone at the supermarket, you're like, oh, that, that's nice. We clicked. We don't follow up. We don't always give that relationship the energy that it deserves. And we do two things that are problematic. The first thing at work is we try to separate personal lives from business lives. So if people click, we we, we almost want to separate them. We don't want friends working together because it's almost like a first-grader type thing. (laughs) You, you, You want teams to be professional. And yet teams that are made of clickers tend to be much more effective. And the second thing that we do is we automatically dismiss a love at first sight relationship. And love at first sight can be romantic and it can also be platonic. And we automatically dismiss those relationships as being you know, not as substantive, not as meaningful, and yet the research shows that they are, that they really do have meaning in our lives.
0: But there are people who seemingly click with everyone, you know, very charismatic people who make you feel good when you meet them and you, you're you drawn to them. Do we discount that kind of clicking?
2: No, because those people don't do... They're not trying to be politic. They're not trying to just kind of impress us and, and get ahead in life. They do it naturally without even thinking about it. And it turns out those, those people who click with everyone are much more successful because of those clicks, because people trust them more, because they're more easily formed relationships. And it really matters. Um, there was one longitudinal study about MBAs uh, who graduated business school. And the folks who were natural clickers or the high self-monitors, did much, much better in their careers than their other counterparts. And it was because of those soft skills. It was because of those connections that they were able to form.
0: How important to people clicking, how important is it that they be face-to-face? Because we live in a, live in a world of online communication, and we often don't see people. We communicate online. So if you're just communicating online and never face-to-face, does that pretty much mean you can't click
2: Face-to-face makes a huge difference, and especially in uh, work situations even. uh, When you think about meetings and, you know, you're like, why don't I just call into this meeting? It's going to be a lot easier. It's it's not going to be a hassle. turns out the really important stuff that happens in meetings at work actually happens right before and right after the meeting. And what it is, it's about the connective, Dialogues that people have, the ability to say, "Hey, Mike, how's it, how's your family going? What's what what's going on with your wife?" Something like that, it actually brings the team much closer together. Uh, Researchers found, so yes, face to face face makes a huge difference. It doesn't mean that you can't you know hit it off with uh, someone online. We looked one of the stories we looked at in the book is um, of these uh, this this woman named Kelly who. Um, end up having uh, the exact same last name as a guy uh, who also named Kelly. And they hit it off online on Facebook. They kind of texted each other, and they had this really magical relationship, and they're now married. Uh, of course, they had to get together in person. So proximity plays a very important role. You can make up for it by similarities, by being vulnerable, by drawing from the other accelerators.
0: So now, now that I know this, now that you've explained this so well— What's the big takeaway from all of this? What's the, what's the big news?
2: The big news is that you can predict whether you'll click with someone. You can also change your behavior in specific ways to form more instant connections. And that these connections are, although they seem um, serendipitous, there's kind of a predictability to them, and that they play a really major role in our lives. They affect whether it's in business or in our personal lives. Those connections really matter.
0: Well, it it is interesting, as you said earlier, that we have been told to be wary of love at first sight, that instant attraction, that Infatuation, because that that will burn out quickly, and 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 that in fact it is a, a red flag that th- this is not something that's that's going to last in the long run. And yet you say just the opposite.
2: Exactly, and um, it turns out that relationships, marriages, uh, when you look at them twenty years after, and uh, they studied pe- couples who were friends first, couples who were daters, and couples who were kind of left first sight. And it turned out that the relationship um, happiness is just the same even twenty years down the road, and that people stay together uh, regardless of really how they met. But the difference is that the love at first sight people had higher levels of passion in their relationships. So a lot of what we thought about love at first sight, you know, and and there's you know, Romeo and Juliet and all those kind of infatuation <laughs> stories, but a lot of what we thought about love at first sight was wrong. It, just because it's an instant connection doesn't mean that it's not uh, a deep one. It doesn't mean that it's not a meaningful one.
0: So if I'm getting this right, you're saying not only is that instant connection, that click, that love at first sight, not only is it not a red flag that it could be trouble, it's just the opposite. It's a it's a sign that this really could be meaningful.
2: That, it's, that it not only can be meaningful, but it can also be more passionate and even be a better connection than some of our other relationships. So that love at first sight, thinking about love at first sight, it being a, you know, infatuation isn't necessarily right.
0: But I certainly wonder when there's such a consensus, and I think there is a consensus that love at first sight, that, you know, magic instant click thing is a warning sign that it'll burn out and it it's not going to go anywhere if everybody believes that, you have to think there must be some truth to it. So, so why do you think people believe it if, in fact, your research shows it's not true?
2: I don't think we trust our, our emotions sometimes, because it doesn't make rational sense, right? Like, how is it that you meet someone and you automatically feel like you've known them for a really long time? And that vulnerability that it creates is kind of scary for us. And we say, well, there's no way that, I could feel th- that those emotions can be real. It, there's no rational basis for me to feel this close to this person, so therefore let me back up <laughs> slowly. But it turns out that the emotions really play an important role. They create a tenor for the relationship that's difficult to attain in other contexts.
0: And it's platonic as well as romantic. It's, it's not just matters of the heart here. It's, it's just people connecting e- even at work as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's, it's romantic, and it's platonic, and it's work-related.
0: And clearly, it's something worth paying attention to. Thanks, Ori. Ori Brothman has been my guest. He is co-author, along with his brother, Ram, of the book, Click, The Forces Behind How We Fully Engage With People, Work, and Everything We Do. And if you want to read it, there's a link to the book in the show notes for this episode. <laughs> If you ever suspect that someone is lying to you, there are some words to listen for. Janine Driver, author of the book You Can't Lie to Me, has a list of words and phrases that liars use a lot. The first one is left, as in, I left the bar at six. A liar would say that rather than I went home at six, because it's less specific. Never. Listen for the use of the word never when no would suffice. Liars tend to overcompensate when they lie. The word that, putting the word that in front of a noun such as that money or that woman is an attempt by the liar to put some distance there. By the way, liars use phrases like by the way to try to minimize what they're about to say. So listen closely to what comes next after, by the way, because it's probably very important. Why would I do that? This is a favorite question of liars. It's an attempt to buy some time to work out what they're going to say next. In addition to why would I do that, look for questions like, what kind of person do you think I am? Or are you calling me a liar? All of that is to just buy time. And that is something you should know. That's the podcast today. If you would like to email me, I am reachable by email. Anytime you like, you can write to me at mike at know.net with questions or comments, or, or just tell me how you found the podcast. I love to hear how people and this podcast meet up. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.